I am 99% sure that Mike has not decided to plant a church in China and stay there. So you should only have to put up with us for a couple more weeks, or a week at the most. But I'm grateful for everyone who came out, and Happy New Year to all. Thanks for the guys who helped out with the sound today, and Jimmy for reading. But today I want to tell you a tale of two tabernacles. Hopefully that will get some questions started in your head. But most of you know that after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he had them set up a tabernacle. It was a tabernacle to, for God's presence to dwell among the people of Israel. And it was a tent. So as the people wandered throughout the wilderness, throughout the desert, the tent could move with them. And it was a place for priests to make sacrifices for sin. Now, we are thousands of years removed from this tabernacle, aren't we? Anyone seen a tabernacle? Maybe one in Orlando, possibly. But besides that, you probably haven't seen a tabernacle. So it's very easy for us to have a very tame, domesticated view of the tabernacle, isn't it? It's easy for us to overlook how graphic the scene would have been. So I want you to use your imagination for a minute and enter the tabernacle scene with your mind's eye. Imagine what it would have been like to be there yourself. Think about what it would have looked like. Imagine the priest there with their hands steadying the animal for sacrifice, getting ready for slaughter. You can see the priests cut these animals up into a bunch of pieces. You can picture a great deal of blood, blood splattered on the altar, blood draining from animals, and they would have gutted the sacrifices. Now listen to the sounds. Think of all the livestock undergoing the painful deaths. Animal slaughter really isn't a very pleasant thing if you've ever seen it happen, is it? Not really a pleasant picture. Now listen to the crackling of a fire that's always burning continually. Now consider the smells. Smell the smoke rising from the fire. Smell the garments of the priests. Ever been camping before? That smell doesn't leave those clothes for several days, several washes. Think of that smell. Make your way over to the priest, gutting an animal. Where's Luke? You ever gutted an animal, Luke? Clean the animal? Think of that smell of the animals. Think of all these things. Think of how graphic the picture would have been. Now, before you think that PETA has a new spokesman in evangelicalism, think again. I'm going into such great detail to show just how serious sin was in the Old Testament, just how important the gospel is for us today. I bring all this up to say that I want the gospel this year to be our foundation for each of us individually and for us as a church collectively. I want the gospel to be the foundation of everything that we do. I want to start this year off with a reminder of the very simple yet very profound message of the gospel of Christ. As you know, and as you've, I'm sure, been thinking about, there are many, many things that grab our attention at the beginning of the year, aren't there? Many goals that we have, all kinds of things that we have, all kinds of new resolutions, right? Most of them have to do with us looking better and us feeling better, don't they? True or false? That's what they all lend themselves to. So I'm all for exercise. I'm all for eating healthily. I'm all for greater self-discipline. I would, I'm a strong proponent of those things. They are profitable, but they have a very limited sphere of usefulness, don't they? Their usefulness only goes so far. But our starting point needs to be somewhere deeper. Our starting point needs to be our relationship with God. So we need to start right there at that foundational level. So that's where I want to bring us all at the very first day of this year at this church to the gospel, back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've been studying the book of Hebrews. 
on Grace on Campus, which is now Grace Off Campus because it's here at the church. But we've been studying the, the book of Hebrews for the last 20 weeks here. Um, so for, if you've been part of that, we're actually, from your perspective, we're just moving on to the next passage. Um, but from your perspective, if you've not been part of that group, I want to obviously take some background so you can see where we're coming from. And I do believe you can benefit from it. But to examine the gospel more closely, I don't think there's a better place to go than the book of Hebrews. You can almost call it the gospel according to Hebrews because the gospel is all over it. And there's some very neat emphases in this book to highlight the gospel and to see it from a fresh angle, from a fresh light. So from our passage today, we're going to see how Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross and how this motivates us to persevere in the Christian life this year. That's where we're going today. So let's read our text. We're actually, I'm not going to preach the text we read for the Old Testament. I'm not doing a text that we read for the New Testament either. That's all for background. Let's look at chapter 9. Look on ahead to verse 23. And please do have your Bibles open because we're jumping into the middle of a book like this or toward the end of a book. I want to uh, look at several cross-references. So do have your Bible handy and do be ready to switch to some other passages. But let's look at Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Let's have another word of prayer. Lord, we do love you. Lord, we do want to look at your word. We want to examine it. And more than that, we want it to examine our own hearts and to expose our weakness, to expose our sin, to expose maybe resolutions that we have this year that are just man-centered, just selfish things. I pray that we would start this year off with the foundation of the gospel in our minds and our hearts, and that would affect everything that we do, all the practical things that happen each day in our lives this year. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So my prayer today is that your primary goal, your central focus, your all-encompassing purpose this year will be living in light of wrath removed. To live in light of God's wrath removed. So let's look at three observations from this text that will help us do that. So first, let's see the greater tabernacle requires a greater sacrifice. The greater tabernacle requires a greater sacrifice. Look at verse 23 again. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Let's look at the first. I said there's two tabernacles. Wondering what we're talking about. Let's look first at the earthly tabernacle. Now that we've read the passage, you probably have some questions that you're asking. First question you might have is, what in the world are these copies? What are the copies that are mentioned here? One unique teaching in the book of Hebrews is that there are two tabernacles. 
One is the earthly tabernacle. We already went into detail at the beginning of the message to describe what that is. But it was only a copy. It was a copy or a representation of a greater reality. That is God's true dwelling place in the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle we looked at in that picture and talked about, that is a copy of the things that are in the heaven. God's true dwelling place in heaven. And also it says that the, the copies were cleansed with these. What's that talking about? They were, what were they cleansed with? This refers to the blood of the tabernacle sacrifices. They were cleansed with all the blood that we've talked about. These sacrifices were offered not once, but all the time, constantly, continually. They were offered twice a day. Some were offered weekly, others annually. All the time, these sacrifices were being offered. Constantly priests, full-time job, 24-7, in the tabernacle, slaughtering animals. This is the earthly tabernacle. And the copies of those things that are in heaven were cleansed with those, ceremonially. So we already read part of Leviticus 16. So sometime this week, if you get a chance, or maybe in your Bible reading plan, read Leviticus 16 and 17 together, and you'll see those pages. You see, you have red letters in the, in the New Testament, right? But those will be dripping with blood, those two chapters, blood all over the place. By the way, if you're doing a Bible reading plan this year, I would suggest once you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, those three books of the Bible, the ones that are sometimes difficult to get through, I would highly suggest taking the book of Hebrews and reading that at the same time as those three books. And you'd be surprised. You might actually get through Leviticus. You might actually get through it. So I would highly suggest that. But why was all this necessary? Why was it necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with this blood? Why was it necessary? First, the, the priests, they were mediators between God and the people of Israel. Look back at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, look at the first three verses. It says there, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. The point here is that if the people of God, if God's people were to have a right relationship with him, they had to do it on his terms. This was necessary. There's no doubt that God took all this extremely seriously, and he intended his Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, to take it very seriously. If you look back at Leviticus 16, I'm just going to go ahead and read it, but it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Who were they? Nadab and Abihu. After they approached the presence of the Lord, and what happened to them? They died because they offered strange or unauthorized fire, fire that God did not tell them to offer. They died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron now that he shall enter that he shall enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So God took this extremely seriously. Extremely serious business, this sacrificial system. That's the earthly tabernacle. So I said there's two. What's the second one? That's the heavenly tabernacle. And here's the key. If the sacrifices of the earthly tabernacle were so serious, so important, so necessary to be ceremonially clean, if that's so significant, how much more the heavenly tabernacle? And that's what he gets out in the next part of the verse. Or in verse 24, it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, 
a mere copy of the true one. But where? Into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So what makes this heavenly tabernacle greater? It's not man-made. It's not just a copy of God's true dwelling place. And it's still around, it's still around isn't it? We're, again, we're thousands of years removed from this first, tab first tabernacle, but this heavenly tabernacle is still around. Again, besides the one in Orlando, if you've ever been there before. And it's for all nations. It's not just for the nation of Israel. And here, most importantly, it bears God's true presence. The heavenly tabernacle bears God's true presence. Don't overlook this. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Where is that? The Lord's throne is in heaven. Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. The heavenly tabernacle is God's true dwelling place. So here's the riddle. Here's the riddle for us this morning. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. How in the world can sinful man, sinful woman, approach the unapproachable? How in the world can this happen? Some of you already know the answer. Some of you don't know the answer. How can sinful man approach the unapproachable God? You may read any book of the Bible, and you're going to see two worlds collide. You're going to see the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God collide all over the place. Everyone is born into sin. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But often in the church today, what I just said is no more than just an old cliche that rolls off your back like water off a duck's back. Just an old cliche. We often think that it's just for preachers who take themselves too seriously. We've tried to diminish and remove the wrath of God. We live in a culture, don't we, where we're encouraged even to disrespect our president, however great or however not so great he might be. You're encouraged to make fun of our leaders, aren't you? Encouraged to disrespect authorities. That didn't really work in the monarchies of the past, did it? Didn't really turn out too well even for King Henry VIII's wives, did it? Not even the wives of kings really got along so well. You didn't just waltz into a king's presence, did you? Very serious stuff. And it's not just in pop culture today, this, this lackadaisical approach to things, but it has penetrated whole Christian denominations. The PCUSA. Anyone heard of the song, In Christ Alone? There's a certain phrase in that song. It's called, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied probably the only song that I know of that speaks that clearly about the wrath of God in relation to the cross of Christ. But you know what the PCUSA did as they were developing a new hymnal? They actually said, we can't have this in the hymnal. They called up Stuart Townend and Keith Getty and said, we want to change the lyrics to the love of God was magnified. And they said, uh, well, we don't want you doing that. So they decided to leave the whole song out of their hymnal, literally taking the wrath of God out of the hymnal. So that's just one example of how we've tried to diminish, remove, suppress the wrath of God. But if you look at Scripture, you cannot do that. We have to remain committed to what the Scripture teaches, or else the gospel is no longer good news. If there's no wrath of God, then the gospel is just ordinary news, isn't it? But the Bible teaches that no man could see God and live. Isaiah's vision of God's holiness, it pulverized him and devastated him, didn't it? God dwells in unapproachable light, the scripture says. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And our God is a consuming fire, isn't he? God's people need to be cleansed if they are ever to approach God's throne. That is the key. God's people need to be cleansed if they are ever to approach God's throne. For us, how does this change us? How does this change our perspective? I believe this is the truth that we've forgotten, even in the church, of God's wrath. Do you know how I know that? Because I've come across even Christians who think that they are allowed to get angry at God or bitter at him, that they are able to blame him for things when bad things go their way. They think they're allowed to blame God for those things, and I've heard Christians talk that way. We have forgotten the truth of God's wrath. And what that is is the height of, I'll call it arrogance, and I'll call it ignorance of God's character. That's what we can call those, that kind of attitude. So I do speak to all of us, all of you as my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not allowed to talk to God that way. We are not allowed to think of God that way. We are not allowed. We do not have the permission to have that attitude. So, are we saying that God is not loving? We're not saying that, are we? His wrath and his love, they exist side by side with equal measure, equal glory. They're both there. Are we saying we're not allowed to even pray to God now? I'm not saying that either. Am I denying that the, even the Old Testament teaches that Gentiles, people outside the nation of Israel, were called by God to call on the name of the Lord? Am I denying that? I'm not denying that either. I am saying that we cannot approach God on our own. We cannot do it. He will not allow sin into his presence. This is getting closer to the answer of our riddle. How can we approach the unapproachable? How can we ever expect to have access to this holy God? How can we approach his throne without tracking dirt into his heavenly tabernacle? How can we do it? Some of you know the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It says, dark is the stain which we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. That hymn gives us the answer to our riddle. God never winks at sin. He never brushes it off. He never shrugs his shoulders. The only solution is blood. And not just a prick of the finger or a slit of the hand like you see in the movies. That's not going to do. The wages of sin is what? Death. Hebrews 9.22, the verse before our passage. It says, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness. So at this point, you have two options. Use your own blood or use the blood of another. Where does your blood take you? Only takes you to hell. Whose blood will suffice? Whose blood will be sufficient? Only one person's blood. Only the blood of one other person and that is Jesus Christ himself. Which, by the way, this is the message I heard whenever I was four, five, six years old, sitting right where those kids are sitting in the church. So who's four years old in the church? Who's a four-year-old? Who's five, six? This is the kind of stuff you have to listen to. This is the truth that you're sitting in the pew. You have to think about it. Even at a little age, I said it's a simple but profound message of the gospel. This is the key. So first, the greater tabernacle requires a greater sacrifice. Jesus himself, number two, is the greater sacrifice. Jesus himself 
is that greater sacrifice. And you see that in verses 25 through 26. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. We have to ask the question, what makes his sacrifice greater? What makes it better? It's not repeated. Jesus' sacrifice is greater because it did not have to be repeated over and over and over again like those of the, of the Levitical Old Testament priests. He only had to do it once. That is way different from the way we do things as humans, isn't it? Everything we do as humans has to be repeated. Any of you work a job? You probably have that job because there's something in the cursed world that has to keep on being repeated. Or maybe it's a positive thing. Or maybe you're in a tree service. That's why Shane's business model is so brilliant because as long as trees grow or as long as trees die, he'll always have a job, won't he? So he'll have to cut them down or trim them. Grego, he's doing physical fitness training. Can someone come in with Grego just once, do some workouts for a day, and then leave and be good for the rest of their life? It's continually, it's continually going. Any of you try to visit the doctor just once in your life? <coughs> some of you try, but is that healthy? You don't just go to the doctor once, he fixes everything, and you're good to go for the rest of your life. You have to keep on going, you have to keep on keeping track of your health. Mowing the yard in the summertime, all these things. And you get the picture, they have to be repeated over and over and over again. But Christ's sacrifice is completely different. He had to do it just once. And that makes his sacrifice greater. The Levitical priests had to keep on making the same sacrifices over and over again because what did they sacrifice? They sacrificed the blood of animals. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. They have to keep on doing it. Also, their sacrifices were only skin deep. They only made the people ceremonially clean according to the ceremony that God established. It says in 9.10, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Does this mean they were unimportant? No. By no means. They teach us that the high price of sin, they teach us the character, the holiness of God, and they teach, her the, they teach us the greater sacrifice of Christ. And as Jimmy read for us, for if the blood of bull, goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling clean those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will Christ's sacrifice cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The answer is to a much greater extent. He's only to do it once. He is a perfect sacrifice. Also, it dealt with sin once and for all. Christ's sacrifice is greater because it dealt with sin once and for all. The sacrifices of the earthly tabernacle were temporary, as Jimmy mentioned in his prayer. They were temporary because they had to be offered all the time, but Jesus did it once. He didn't have to offer himself over and over again. If that were the case, to keep up with our sin, according to this verse, he'd have to be offering himself often since the foundation of the whole world. He'd have to keep on doing it to keep up with our sin. But that's not the case. And again, this is why the whole premise of the Roman Catholic Mass is blasphemous with the re-sacrifice of Christ week by week. The Mass is not just some tame thing, some religious ceremony that you can just go to in and out, no big deal. It's blasphemy. 
Christ did it once. That's why you could say it is finished. Verse 26 says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look back at 1.3 if you have the time. It says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. His work was finished. Note also, it dealt with sin once for all because his sacrifice actually accomplished something. His sacrifice actually did something. His death did not just potentially pay for our sin. It actually paid for our sin. And if you get a uh, gift card for Christmas, who didn't get a gift card for Christmas? Well, make sure you get one because that's sad. <laughs> you have that gift card, right? Any of you forgot a gift card from the year before? And, oh, yes, I can still use this for something. That's potential, isn't it? You have potential to use that. You just potentially can buy something that you need or want, right? Is Christ's sacrifice like that? Is it a gift card you just access whenever you want? It actually did something. It actually paid for the sins of God's people. It dealt with sin once and for all. He died to save his people from their sin. Still others think that Jesus maybe paid for our past sin, and you might be forgiven, but then you have to pay for your own future sin. You hear people talk that way? Some people think that way. But that's also a lie. His sacrifice paid for our sin once and for all. If you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, he has paid the price of your sin actually and totally. That's what his sacrifice does. One Bible teacher put it this way. He removed the debt of sin that was written on the believer's account. Christ's coming brought an end to that debt. And the account shows the word paid. It's done. He didn't just cover up the sin. He didn't just shrug his shoulders at it. He didn't just say, oh, I'm, I'm loving, so I'll just forget about it. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. He has put away our sin. He has credited Jesus' righteousness to our account. That's what his sacrifice did. That's why I love the song that we sang. It says, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Is what's been done with it. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. That is speaking volumes to our soul. So how did he do this? How did he remove sin? Notice next that Jesus' sacrifice is greater because he sacrificed himself. God incarnate sacrificed himself. The text says that it was the sacrifice of himself. So we learn from this that Jesus is the sacrifice of the heavenly tabernacle, isn't he? He's the sacrifice. The Bible teaches that salvation is from the Lord and the Lord only, doesn't it? No man, no animal can pay the full penalty of our sin. No mere man could ever appease the wrath of God. Only someone who is fully God and fully man can be the mediator between God and man. And the only person who meets that criterion is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the only one who can make that sacrifice. Only someone who has experienced our weakness, our frailty, experienced even our temptations, and did it without sin, only someone like that could pay the penalty for our sin, and that person can be our representative before God. Notice also that Jesus' sacrifice is greater because it gives us open, free access to God the Father. So Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he's also the priest of the heavenly tabernacle. It's a dual role, sacrifice and priest. 
Let's learn to cherish the words of verse 24, the message that's in verse 24, that Jesus appeared in the presence of God for us. Don't overlook that statement. He appeared in the presence of God. It says, for us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and who is it? Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Because of that, we can approach whose throne boldly? We can approach God's throne boldly to have grace, mercy in our time of need. That's what his sacrifice does. His sacrifice is greater. It makes a fundamental change in our relationship with God. If your faith is in Christ, you no longer have to cower in fear of God's wrath, do you? Not only can you approach him now, but you can approach him with confidence. This is a fundamental ground-level change in our relationship with God. The cross is the answer to our riddle of how we approach the unapproachable. It's the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was raised three days later. He appeared to many eyewitnesses the good news of the gospel that we can have open access to God the Father. I want you to listen in now. How do we respond to this truth? We've all, probably many of us, have heard this truth before. You've listened to sermons. You've listened to podcasts. You've read books. You've read tracts. You've heard this truth before. But how do we respond to it? And this is the key. What we do with this is the key. We could just let it sit or we could put it into action. Another Christmas gift, popcorn, Christmas cans. Anyone get that this year? No one. See, that proves my point. Okay, you think you're going to finish all that by January? By the end of January? You think you'll still have some of it maybe in February? Uh, maybe by March? Maybe you'll throw it away, right? Because the caramel side will be completely full and all the rest around it will be half, etc. Okay. It's really fun the first day. The kids love it. But after a while, what happens to it? It gets stale. Yes. That's exactly, and I hate to use a cheap illustration, but we retreat the gospel that treat cheaply, don't we? This is how we treat the gospel of Christ. So I want us to respond differently to this truth. We often let the gospel sit in the back corner of our hearts, and we let it grow stale. We develop, we get here to the New Year's. We have all these resolutions, all these things that we can look and feel better. And we completely neglect how they might relate to the gospel. So that's why I want to lay this foundation at the beginning of the year to root everything we do in this. So how does the truth of the gospel grow, grow stale? How does that happen? I believe it grows stale when you stop reading the Old Testament. When you stop seeing what the Old Testament has to say about the gospel, many people end up with the two-God view of the Bible, don't they? You have the loving, sacrificial God of the New Testament, and then you have the barbaric, bloodthirsty God of the Old Testament, right? And then for those people, what does the gospel become? The gospel merely becomes just associating with this nice God and then distancing yourself from the mean God. The gospel is so much more than that. That's a completely blurred view of the gospel. Read the Old Testament. It also grows stale when you stop applying it to all of your life circumstances. Whenever we say, well, I got my church gospel, and then I got the rest of my life that I live outside of that. The gospel is good for church. It's good for whenever I'm having meals with other Christians, and I can talk to them about it. But outside those fellowships, the gospel is not a part of my life. It grows stale when we do that. When you start looking for things that are more relevant, things that are more exciting, things that are trending in other churches, or what have you, there's nothing more relevant than the gospel. Nothing. 
Another way we stop applying it to our lives is when we start trying to be our own Messiah. We start saying, you know, doing self-atonement, start, okay, I'm sinning, I'm falling into my little patterns, and then you've got to try to lift yourself out of those things. That doesn't work either. You're not applying it to that sin. You apply the gospel to that sin. You're not your own Messiah. It also grows stale when you search for other things you think will be more exciting or more cutting edge. This is when the side issues become central. Who's heard of the Gospel Coalition? Wow, quite a bit. This is what D.A. Carson, who really pretty much founded the Gospel Coalition, this is what he said in 2007 at the very first public conference that that coalition had. Here's what he said. So the gospel, I'm sorry, if the gospel is merely assumed while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus their zeal on the periphery. Let me read that again. So if the gospel is merely assumed, if we just take it for granted, in other words, okay, yeah, I got the gospel. We just assume it. Okay, we're okay with the gospel thing. While relatively peripheral issues, maybe important, maybe unimportant, but the side issues take center stage, and those ignite our passion, those excite us more than the gospel. If we do that, we're going to train a new generation of Christians who downplay the gospel, whether vocally or not, and they're going to focus their zeal on the side issues only. And this is extremely key for us as Christians because we can sometimes get over the gospel in our hearts, but we get back to the gospel and make the gospel the centerpiece, make the gospel the center of what we do. Notice also that it grows stale, and this is key, when we stop sharing it with others. The gospel grows stale when we stop sharing it. How can you expect to be enamored by the gospel? How can you say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes if you're not seeing anyone come to know Christ? You won't be enamored by the gospel. And how can you see people come to know Christ if you're never telling them? How can they hear without a preacher? You have to tell them. So we need to start sharing it with others, with believers and with unbelievers, sharing the gospel again. And as we're doing these things, as we're looking at the gospel to be the centerpiece of our lives, and as we're sharing it, as we're seeing it change people's lives, it's going to be an amazing thing in our life. We're going to see it from a fresh angle, and it's going to give us all kinds of zeal for the gospel, for Christ and his kingdom and his service. So I'm convinced that we do these things. I'm convinced that we let the gospel grow stale because we've allowed a gap to grow in our lives. Salvation is past, present, future, isn't it? We will be saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, right? It teaches that. But I believe we allow a gap to grow between our past dimension and the future dimension. Something breaks it off in the middle. And I was talking with someone even this week that this is the hardest part of the Christian life where your sins are forgiven. And then you have the future hope of heaven and being with Christ one day. And then the next day happens. And then your problems come swarming in. How in the world do you wait around? How do you do this? What we do is we start filling in with other things, things that we think are going to get us along. We allow the gap to grow in this case, where the gospel is here and there, but not in the middle. This is what we do. This is what Paul, David, Tripp, some of you write his books, Timothy Lane, they call this the gospel gap. Listen to this quote by them. People need to see that the gospel belongs in their workplace, their kitchen, their school, their bedroom, their backyard, and even their van. For those of us with vans. 
They need to see the way the gospel makes a connection between what they are doing and what God is doing. They need to understand that their life stories are being lived out within God's larger story so that they can learn to live each day with the gospel mentality, closing that gap. The gospel does and should make a difference in our lives. So the question we have to ask, the question we need to answer, the question we need to apply is how do we close the gap? I believe verses 27 and 28 give us the answer that Jesus' sacrifice motivates us to greater perseverance. Number three, Jesus' sacrifice motivates us to greater perseverance. Look at verses 27 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It motivates us. His sacrifice motivates us. And as we look ahead to what he will do in the future, we are motivated to persevere in the Christian life. Look first at the certainty of death and judgment. It's a well-known statistic that we'd all agree with that the person next to you is going to die one day. You're going to die one day. Ten out of every ten people do die. We are all going to die. And what's going to happen after that? The judgment. This is certain. You hear people every day suppressing this, but one day this is going to happen. And you better believe that this passage is teaching that. It does teach that. The Bible also teaches elsewhere that in Adam all die. And that one day we must all stand before the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. This is going to happen. Death is going to happen and judgment will happen. However, for many of us, we've only heard this verse or just this first part of the verse. You hear... It's pointed for man that I once and after this comes judgment. Period, right? Who's ever heard this in context? This is what I want to look at. That's only the first half of the sentence. Here's what the verses are teaching. The author of Hebrews brings up the certainty of judgment, certainty of death, to substantiate or to prove the certainty of deliverance. So just as death and final judgment are guarantees, so also is the final deliverance of God's people. So this is not just a death and judgment verse. This is a motivational verse for believers to persevere, to wait for Christ to come back. So let's look at the motivation of this deliverance. So for the believer in the room, you are called to live in light of this. We're called to live in eager anticipation of our final salvation when Jesus comes back. We are to live in light of wrath removed and waiting for Jesus' return. To come back, not to pay for sin again, but to deliver his people for salvation. This is all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.7 teaches that the believers are to await eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, we are to look for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So as believers, we can live with eager anticipation of Jesus coming because we will not face the judgment that so many others will face one day. This is the motivation, that we are not going to face that judgment that many, many others that you know even will face. This is a sad motivation. It's a depressing and joyful at the same time, that we're motivated to persevere knowing that Jesus is coming back for us, not to pay for our sin, but to deliver us from this body of death and from this cursed world but so many others will face the judgment. 
Now, before you judge all this as irrelevant, say, well, the gospel, this is great, but I want something more relevant. Before you judge this as irrelevant, let's look at the situation that the original readers of Hebrews would have been in. What situation were they in? Were they in a good situation or a bad situation? Just a neutral situation, just an everyday Christian life for them? So it's very interesting to look at their situation and look how the author of Hebrews brings the gospel into it. What's their background? Look at chapter 10, the very next chapter. Look at verse 32. Let's see what they were facing. 10.32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Verse 33. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Happened to you lately? And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. That's their situation. Probably more difficult than most of us are facing right now. Seizure of property, being made a public spectacle, reproached, shamed. This is difficult. But what does the author of Hebrews bring to them? Seven ways to be happy in a whatever world? He brings the gospel to their world, doesn't he? He brings the gospel to bear on their lives. And that is going to be the most relevant answer for their situation, the gospel. Because it's all over Hebrews. The most relevant thing for those was the gospel. And the most relevant thing for our lives is the gospel. It touches every area of our life. It changes everything. First, it gives us a clean conscience before God. It gives us love for Christ's people. It gives us contentment at work. It gives us patience with our singleness. It gives us patience with our spouse. It gives you gentleness toward your children. It gives you joy during trials. It gives you courage to do the right thing even when it's not the most popular thing. The gospel changes everything, and it should change everything. And only the cross of Christ can do these things in your life. The book of Hebrews is full of both exposition and application, both teaching and doing, hearing and doing, teaching the truth, obeying the truth, back and forth, all throughout Hebrews, if you were to read it straight through. The main point of the exposition, of the preaching side of Hebrews, is that we have such a great high priest. What's the application? What's the fallout of that? Because we have such a great high priest, we persevere. You persevere by looking to him. And that's the message of Hebrews. That's the message that's in our passage. The gospel motivates us. Jesus' sacrifice motivates us to greater perseverance. And it's by looking to Christ. People who have been part of the Hebrews discussion, we've quoted this probably every single week. Perseverance, one Bible teacher said, perseverance in the Christian life is directly related to the clarity with which we see Jesus and what he's done for us. I'll say it again. Perseverance in the Christian life is directly related to how clearly we see Jesus, how clearly we see what he's done for us. That's how we persevere, by looking to him. That's the message of Hebrews. That's the message of this text. So my challenge to you is this. Before you consider any other your New Year's resolutions, however good, however strange, however, whatever they might be, before you consider all those, consider the gospel first. Consider how it might relate to those things. Resolve your primary resolution to look to the person and work of Christ as the center of everything you do this year. And at the same time, avoid the tendency to look to yourselves. 
Avoid the tendency to look within for hope. Looking to Christ is the only answer. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, much better words. Pretty much anything he said is going to be better than the way I said it. But he said this, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, Your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You don't repent enough. You'll never be able to continue until the end. You don't have the joy of God's children. You have such a pitiful hold on Jesus. He's always telling us those kind of things. What do all those things have in common, though? All those are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. And that's the answer. We look to who? We look to Christ. If you are in Christ, God is not mad at you. His wrath is removed. You live in light of that. He truly is not mad at you. You may be under his discipline, but it's loving discipline. If you are his child, he is not mad at you anymore. And that is liberating because we are weighed down with cares. We're weighed down with burdens, weighed down with guilt, weighed down with sins. But if you know that God is not mad at you because you have placed your faith only in Christ, that is the most liberating truth you'll ever hear, that God is no longer angry with you. So all we can do, all we should do, is look to Christ for our hope and for our forgiveness. The cross of Christ saves us. The cross of Christ justifies us. The cross of Christ sanctifies us. The cross cleanses our conscience. There's nothing more relevant than the cross of Christ, and there's no substitute for the cross of Christ. So let's pray that the truth that we discovered this morning, or maybe for some of you, you rediscovered it. Let's pray that it's going to sink down into our hearts and into our actions this week, this year. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you very much. We do love the cross of Christ. I pray that we would apply it. I pray that we'd look at it and every situation that we face and that we turn to you for our forgiveness, turn to you for our hope, turn to you for our perseverance. I pray that we would not look within. We'd be rightly discouraged if we look inside of us. We see our sin. We see our weakness. We see our frailty. 